And now, broadcasting live from the restaurant at the end of the universe, this is the history of the Atlantic world. of the Conquistadors. Thank you for joining us. Now, as I began to prepare for this podcast, I knew that I was going to talk an awful lot about Spain and Portugal, since these are the two nations that really initiate the sustained contact between the old and new worlds, and and frankly, the rapacious conquests uh, that follow are the stuff of legend. Now, what I didn't know was that I was going to begin a podcast that really ought to start somewhere around 1492 by talking extensively about the medieval period. Um, But that's because if we start in 1492 with the fact that an Italian merchant and navigator from Genoa uh, begged the crown of Spain for support uh, for a journey to the Far East and uh, in doing so accidentally uh, arrived at the Caribbean on the way to India. Uh, Well, when that man, Christopher Columbus, wrote a letter back upon reaching the Caribbean to Ferdinand and Isabella, the monarchs of Spain, he stated in conclusion that on the island of Hispaniola, they, uh, the Catholic monarchs, that is, could obtain, quote, as many slaves as they choose to send for, all heathens, unquote. And I think that requires at least some manner of explanation. Now, so I started to research the subject, and the more I learned about the conquests of the people of the Iberian Peninsula, the more questions I had. Now, Spain wasn't even a unified country until a generation before Columbus's mission, which is pretty astonishing. Uh, yet less than a century afterwards, the Spanish could boast of an empire upon which the sun never set. Centuries before the rival British could make some claims. In addition, Portugal, tiny in both size and population in comparison to uh, the other kingdoms of Spain and uh, let alone the rest of Europe and the Mediterranean. Uh, By the 16th century, the Portuguese empire would stretch into Africa, India, and the New World. Um, The amount of territory conquered in the span of just a few generations by these early uh, modern uh, Iberians begs the question of how they became so powerful. And so we begin our first series, Rise of the Conquistadors, with a question. Why Spain? Why Portugal? How was it that the descendants of the Visigoths, 
had become such a, uh, a basically a bunch of barbarous world-conquering conquistadors with fancy ocean-going vessels. Now, and to answer the question of why Spain and Portugal, uh, I, I found that I had to delve into territory that I'm not probably best suited at talking about, uh, the medieval uh, era. That's something I'm, I'm not an expert at. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more knowledgeable about the early modern period, but, but for both myself and for you to better understand of, of, of the changes that take place between, you know, basically between the lives that we're living now and the lives that people led uh, 700, six, 700 years ago, uh, around the world, basically, almost. Um, we, we have to understand why uh, Spain and Portugal uh, came to be. And to do that, we have to go back to the 7th century. Now, at this time, a middle-aged businessman began acting in a most peculiar fashion. He basically stopped conducting his business and left the city in which he resided and started wandering around the countryside. He heard voices speaking to him and said he saw an angel in the sky, and later that angel visited him again in a dream and nearly suffocated him until the man repeated these words. In the name of thy Lord who created, created man of a blood clot, and thy Lord is the most generous, who taught by the pen, taught man that he knew not. Now when that man awoke, he recalled, it was as if those words were written on his heart. The city we are talking about is Mecca. The man's name was Muhammad, and as a result of these mysterious goings-on in the desert, vast trade routes connected Europe, Africa, and Asia for the first time under a single religion. Centuries later, Christopher Columbus would attempt to circumnavigate the Muslim control of these global, and I say that in air quotes, uh, these global trade routes by sailing to Asia. Now, going back to the 7th century again, uh, by conquest and commerce, Islam spread pretty quickly. Uh, it destroyed the Persian Empire. Uh, it hacked Egypt, Syria, and the Holy Lands off of the Byzantine Empire. And by the start of the 8th century, the ferocious Berber tribes of western North Africa were forcibly converted to Islam and were organized into armies led by Arab generals. Now, and I, I want to... Uh, I should have probably said this at the beginning, too. Um, I am going to attempt to put up some maps uh, online on the uh, Atlantic World Facebook page. But uh, until that time, and even after that time, uh, this episode in particular, I found it very helpful, uh, be me being not extremely knowledgeable about the Mediterranean world, to, to look at maps while I was doing the research for some of this sometimes. And I highly re would recommend... Um, you doing so as well, really, and not just for this episode, for any of my episodes, and, and frankly, for for almost uh, learning about almost any history, especially with uh, geography you're not real familiar uh, with. Uh, if you haven't done that before, uh, that is to say, um, uh, taking a look at a map uh, while you're 
while you're thinking about uh, some historical knowledge. You, you might be surprised how, how, how helpful it could be to help you understand uh, things. A anyway, uh, with that said, it, I am going to also do my best to endeavor uh, that you do not necessarily need to be using a map uh, at the same time while listening to this, uh, you know, safe driving and all. At any rate, uh, now, in the year 711, a Berber army uh, with an Arab leader named Tariq crossed the Straits of Gibraltar uh, from Morocco uh, to raid against the kingdom of the Visigoths. And the, the name Gibraltar actually derives from the Arabic name for Tariq's rock, by the way. But uh, Tariq launches a series of exploratory raids with his small force against the provinces of the Visigothic Empire. Now, the king of the Visigoths, I mean, King Roderick, had recently become king, uh, and he had done so with via civil war uh, against his rivals and enemies, and some of these people might have actually have been aiding Tarek's forces. Uh, uh, and at any rate, uh, Roderick uh, met with, uh, his force met with Tarek after, after uh, finishing a campaign to the north against some of those said rivals, and the two sides met in the year 712. A short battle ensued, and during which King Roderick was slain. Uh, Tarek and his forces promptly marched to the capital of Toledo. The invaders slew any potential rivals amongst the prominent people of that city, and just like that, the Visigoth Empire, or monarchy, I guess I should say, was no more. Now, Tarek's lord, Musa, brought a huge army across the Mediterranean upon learning this news, seeing a, you know, a big opportunity in front of him, uh, which caused the Archbishop of Toledo to flee, abandoning his flock. And uh, when Musa, uh, the, uh, uh, the Muslim king, withdrew, he took a huge host of captured Visigoth nobles with him to be ransomed, as well as huge quantities of bullion and jewelry. He left his son to govern the province and to engage uh, in some mop-up duty, uh, basically, with what remained of the Visigoth resistance. And according to sources writing in the year 754, the entire Iberian Peninsula fell under the rule of Islam by the year 720. Now, most of the settlers who came in afterwards, who, in, who followed in the wake of the conquest, were Berbers, and they called Moorish Spain Al-Andalus. Um, now, they would have just probably kept on rolling up Europe, to be perfectly honest, uh, that is to say, Islam. Um, but, but that doesn't happen. Um, and... What ends up happening, basically, is in the 1750s and 1760s, uh, a guy by the name of, uh, who will come to be known as Alfonso I, um, uh, defeats the Muslims, uh, the Muslim army uh, in several encounters, uh, uh, creating the Principality of Asturias. This is in northern uh, Spain. And afterwards, he begins raiding uh, the valley south of him, the, uh, uh, the valley with the River Douro, uh, which compelled many of the residents there to move northwards safety into his newly created principality of Asturias uh, and also uh, Galicia. Uh, now, as a result, a buffer zone is created, basically, between the Christian north and Muslim Andalusia. Now, 
During this time, Andalusia basically experiences a process of Islamification. Uh, that is to say most of Spain. Now, in the year 800, about 8% of the population of Andalusia was Muslim. And by 850, uh, this figure has only risen to about 12.5%. But by 900, it had doubled to uh, 25%. And by 950, it had doubled again to a full uh, 50%. Half of the inhabitants of Andalusia were Muslim. Now, at a... At the year 1000, this number is going to top off at about 75%. Um, and, and just uh, for reference, the Christians who live under Arabic rule are called Mozarabiques. Now, during this time, the Caliphate of Cordoba, uh, which is the, the, the dynasty in charge uh, of Andalusia, experiences a golden age during the 10th century. But if we can go back... Uh, to the defeats um, that that prevent Andalusia from expanding northward into Europe, I think it's pretty easy to see uh, some of the big factors uh, that 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 some of the faults in the foundation of this empire uh, that would lead to its demise. Now, first, um, there was a standing army in Andalusia of sixty thousand soldiers, but the vast majority of these are slaves. They might be Slavs, Franks, Lombards, or whoever. And these soldiers often had little knowledge of Arabic, and they largely were protecting a population that they remained separate from. Um, so when, when we see uh, Asturias being created after the defeat of a Muslim army, we I might be talking about... We're talking about uh, people who are fighting for their lives on one hand, and, and for certainly for their homeland and for, I guess, medieval conceptions of, of freedom, of, of, which is to say that uh, I don't think they would have conceived as freedom in the exact same way that we do today. But at any rate, um, more importantly, uh, Al-Andalusia was also separate from the majority of the Arabic world. Um, in the mid-8th century, the people in charge of the Arabic world, basically the Umayyads, uh, the dynasty is replaced by another dynasty, the Abbasid dynasty. Now, we're not going to get too far into this, but there's one guy, a single survivor from the original previous dynasty, the uh, Umayyads, uh, the Umayyad prince Abd al-Ram. Now, he manages to escape the Middle East, and eventually he makes his way to Cordoba. And in 756, after a coup, establishes a dynasty there. And so, as a result of this, Andalusia is kind of on the outs with the Muslim Empire. Uh, and especially when the Abbasids move uh, the capital to Baghdad and move the entire center of gravity uh, of the Muslim world east from the Mediterranean to Persia. Um, and this make, means that Andalusia exists apart from the greater Muslim world in some ways. And so we're not talking about some, 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 uh, uh, some Christian knights in Asturias uh, defeating a giant empire. Uh, we're talking about them defeating a, 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 essentially a, a renegade kingdom. Um, now, one other thing uh, that I think uh, is hurting... Andalusia, I, I could say, is that they are threatened uh, continually 
I should say, over and over uh, by new Shiite powers uh, in the Maghrib, that is, across the Mediterranean. Uh, the first of these is the Fatimid dynasty, which founds a capital on, called uh, Al-Madiya on the coastline of modern-day Tunisia. Uh, the Fatimid dynasty uh, was a formidable sea power, uh, and that threatened Andalusia's trade. And further, the Fatimids, um, basically what they were doing was trying to control the Sahara trade of gold and slaves, which uh, the Amirs of Cordoba depended upon since it connected them with uh, the economic powerhouse of Timbuktu in Africa. And ultimately, one of the main effects of the success of the eventual reconquest of Spain is that Iberian Christians will develop just enough familiarity with the African trade in gold and slaves and other luxuries that this is precisely the reason that they begin voyaging into the Atlantic is for better access to these goods. And that ultimately will lead us to Columbus's voyage. Um, now, in response to the threat from the Fatimids, uh, the capital of Cordoba fortified Andalusia's Mediterranean coast and instead of, say, you know, continuing to put that money to work uh, fighting uh, Christian barbarians in the north, um, they put it to work uh, both defending their southern coastline and uh, attempting to have good relations with these Berber chiefs of the Maghreb to prevent uh, any possible alliances with the Fatimids. And this may have worked um, because the Fatimids ultimately go eastward and conquer Egypt, and there they remain uh, pretty dominant in the Middle East until the arrival of the Seljuk Turks. Um, now, Andalusia thus was spared by the rising Fatimid power, and so uh, the capital of Cordoba turned northwards only then uh, to deal with the troublesome Christian principalities that had emerged in the 8th century and which had grown pushed, uh, and had pushed the frontier zone south since that time. Now in the east, uh, Christian resistance was centered around Barcelona. And by the year 900, this small principality controlled a few miles of coast to the south as well. Further west of this was Navarre, and that was later to be joined by the Kingdom of Aragon as well. By the early 10th century, Navarre uh, sought the conquest of the Rioja region of Spain. The most western part of the peninsula was the new seat of political power for the Kingdom of Lyon. And that was growing so quickly that it would soon be split into Lyon and Castile. Now, so Andalusia, now free from worry of invasion from the south, turned north towards Lyon, Castile, Navarre, Aragon, and Barcelona. Now, the Andalusian Al-Razi provided a narrative when he participated in one of the campaigns against the Christians, and I'm going to uh, read from that to give us an idea of the kind of conflict that is going on between these two societies. Quote, In the year 920, there took place al-Nasser's expedition against enemy territory, which is known as the Muez Campaign. He led it in person from his capital, right into the heart of the enemy lands, a warrior in a holy cause. This was the first expedition against the infidels under his personal command. After lengthy appropriate preliminaries, the army set out on the 4th of June and made camp at Guadalajara on the 15th. 
On that day, Al Nasser appointed Said ibn al-Mundir as governor of Guadalajara. From there, he penetrated deeply into enemy territory, laying it waste, destroying the fortresses of Osma and San Esteban, and many monasteries and churches. The barbarian rulers, Ordoño of Galicia, i.e. Leon, and Sancho of Pamplona, assisted by their infidel vassals and neighbors, came forth to do battle with the Muslim army. A violent conflict ensued between them, in which the Muslims, well-led and strong in morale, routed the infidels. God turned the unity of those two barbarians into disunity, and their many into few. The defeat took place on the 25th of July. Those who survived fled for the castle of Muez, where they were besieged until nearly dead from thirst. The fortress was taken by assault four days later, and its inmates surrendered. The combatants amongst them were put to the sword in the presence of al-Nasir, more than 500 of their counts and knights. Al-Nasir returned by way of Alava, where he destroyed the town of Burgos and others nearby, and made his way back to Cordoba in triumph. The campaign had lasted three months. Unquote. Now, the warfare between these two sides was often brutal, and, as you might imagine, combat between men armed with swords, pikes, and axes would be. And, and besides the absolute human carnage that can result from hand-to-hand uh, combat and war, you know, the dead actually might have had it easy, since if you were on the losing side, um, you know, and you survived, you were probably going to be sold into slavery if you if, if they didn't if you weren't wealthy enough to be ransomed off and, and I guess bought back by your people. Um, now, this is the era of the so-called Andalusian Golden Age, um, and it will have great consequences for Europe and for the rest of the world that will reverberate through history. And that's because the Andalusians speak Arabic, and that puts them on the western edge of an Islamic trade network that stretched southwards into Africa and eastwards all the way to China. The magnetic compass, paper, and gunpowder were introduced to Europe in this way. Andalusia profited greatly at this time. Further, Spain experienced a, a, a green revolution as Muslims brought complex forms of irrigation with them, a number of new crops were introduced to Europe through Spain as well, including rice, hard wheat, cotton, oranges, lemons, limes, bananas, pomegranates, watermelons, spinach, artichoke, and most importantly to the future, cane sugar. And we don't know the exact number, but perhaps as many as six and a half million gold dinars were minted in Cordoba annually at times during the 10th century. The city had a population that may have been as high as 100,000 people. And through cross-cultural exchange, Europe also benefited, benefited, I should say Christian Europe, benefited greatly by this. Sometimes aided by Jewish communities, which could function as a go-between in certain circumstances between Christians and Muslims, though not always, um, because while often what is occurring between the Christians uh, north and between the Christian north and the Muslim south of Iberia can be explained as conflict between Christians and Muslims, 
it's really just part of the story, uh, the conflict is. And, and often as these cultures conflicted, so too did they intermingle. Now, we're going to see this time and, and time again um, as we continue this. But, but for now, let's talk about one guy. His name was Rodrigo Diaz, and he's probably the perfect example of what I'm talking about here. His title, El Cid, is how he has become known to us through history, which is a derivation from the Arabic Al Said, or Lord. Now, Diaz, who amongst the Spanish was renowned as Al Campeador, or the Outstanding Warrior, was a knight born in 1043, who served as a knight for the kingdoms of Leon and Castile in wars against the king's own brothers. And later, when one of these very brothers, Alfonso VI of Leon, just so you know, uh, became the new king, he exiled Diaz in 1081. Now, Diaz afterwards, well, in exile, went on to fight for Zaragoza, for the Muslims, and defended that city successfully against attacks from both Christians and Muslims. El Cid, in fact, ended with quite the career. Um, the last five of his years of his life, he was the um, the Christian lord of the Muslim city of Valencia, which he ruled autonomously until his death in 1099. Now, Diaz is definitely a bit of an outlier, but he was hardly alone in his cross-cultural journey. And I'd like to take a moment here to make a broader point, um, because what we are going to be doing here is telling a story. And, and while I'm always going to uh, attempt to make things as complicated as possible, the act of transforming history into a narrative will streamline things, and that means things will occasionally be getting left out, uh, which hopefully means we'll be able to go back to them at some point. But for now, I want to read uh, a passage from a very bright sociologist that when I read it gave me some sense of enlightenment on, the idea, on, on, on a little bit about how cultures mix, I guess, both historically and today. I should say, and hopefully uh, it's going to give you the same help it gave me in both understanding medieval Spain and the creation of the modern world, which results from the connecting of the Americas. Uh, now, with that said, uh, I should say that I knew almost nothing about, so this is, I think, the first sociology book that I'd ever opened up. Or, or book written by a sociologist. And so I'm, I was very pretty unfamiliar with that whole perspective. So this might be old news to you. And if, if that's uh, the case, then I apologize. But um, at any rate, the book is entitled Europe and the People Without History. The author's name is Eric Wolf. Um, and the quote, <clears throat> On one level, it has become commonplace to say that we all inhabit one world. There are ecological connections. New York suffers from the Hong Kong flu. The grapevines of Europe are destroyed by American plant lice. There are demographic connections. Jamaicans migrate to London. Chinese migrate to Singapore. There are economic connections. A shutdown of oil wells on the Persian Gulf halts generating plants in Ohio. A balance of payments unfavorable to the United States drains American dollars into bank accounts in Frankfurt or Yokohama. Italians produce fiat automobiles in the Soviet Union. Japanese build a hydroelectric system in Ceylon. 
There are political connections. Wars begun in Europe unleash reverberations around the world. American troops intervene on the rim of Asia. Finns guard the border between Egypt and Israel. This holds true not only of the present, but also of the past. Diseases from Eurasia devastated the native population of America and Oceania. Syphilis moved from the New World to the Old. Europeans in Tehir plants and animals, excuse me, their plants and animals invaded the Americas. American potatoes, maize, manioc spread throughout the New World. Chinese and Indian indentured laborers were shipped to Southeast Asia and, West, and the West Indies. Portugal created a Portuguese settlement in Macau off the coast of China. Dutch men, using labor obtained in Bengal, constructed Batavia. Irish children were sold into servitude in the West Indies. Fugitive African slaves found sanctuary in the hills of Suriname. Europe, Europe learned to copy Indian textiles and Chinese porcelain, to drink Native American chocolate, to smoke Native American tobacco, and to use Arabic numerals. Unquote. Now the point that, that Wolf is making here, and, and I guess I am trying to make through him, I should say, is that connections between people are everywhere. Binding everyone and everything together in more complex ways than history or, frankly, any other humanity or social science can fully showcase. And anyway, I just want to throw that idea out there. So that is, I just want that to be rattling around in the back of your head. And also in mine, I think, as well, as we continue this journey. Now, focusing back in, if we can, though, on, on medieval Spain... Things were not going very well for the Christian principalities, generally speaking, uh, during the 10th century. And especially after the successful crusader King Romero of Lyon died in 950, uh, his rivals for secession fought, uh, called in favors and allies from other principalities, and as a result, uh, diplomats from Andalusia were able to exploit this situation. Leonese rulers essentially became tributaries of Andalusia. And things were even worse during the tail end of the 10th century, when the vizier, known to Europeans as Almanzar, took power. During his reign, from 981 to, 10, to 1002, he undertook no fewer than 57 victorious campaigns against the Christian north. Most spectacularly, in 997, his armies reached all the way to Santiago de Compostola in the far northwest of the peninsula. And boy, let me just say, uh, on an aside, um, if you th are having fun listening to me uh, massacre uh, Spanish and Arabic, wait till uh, next episode when we get to add uh, French and Italian to this. Um, at any rate, uh, now, uh, back to Almanzar, whose armies have, in 997, sacked the Santiago de Compostola, and they take the church bells back with them as trophies to Cordoba, and there they would remain for the next 200 years. Now, obviously, Andalusia benefited from the loot obtained by raiding the north, but ransoming captives could be extremely profitable as well. 
and the extended centuries-long conflict between Muslims and Christians in this period gave both more and more familiarity with the institution of chattel slavery, which is to say a slave who is also a piece of sellable property. Um, now, despite these successes, the leadership of Cordoba could only take things so far, though, in their war against the Christian infidels of the north. Um, they could never allow their generals on the frontier to amass too much power, lest they risk rebellion. And, and I, hear, I think it's important to, to understand that at this point in time, the Muslim Empire, or I guess, the, and I, I shouldn't probably call it a single empire, but the Muslim culture of the medieval period really sort of is, in a lot of ways, an inheritor of uh, the Romans. Um, and what they're scared of if they let someone like Almanzar get too much power up the north, it's him doing, making like Julius Caesar, essentially, and coming right back. Uh, these people have uh, the ancient Roman and the Greek texts, um, and they, they are, you know, they're using that to, to help them have a, a more, shall we say, sophisticated understanding of uh, politics. Now, at any rate, um, since the leadership of Cordoba could only take things so far, and uh, this left Andalusia in a bit of a crisis in the early 11th century. See, Almanzar had been a powerful figure, and he had basically led for three decades, uh, but he wasn't the caliph. He was the caliph's vizier, basically the prime minister, and as a, re as a result, his taking power had opened Pandora's box inside of Andalusia. Now, the caliph died in 1008, a few years after Almanzar, and, and during the time in between uh, and, and the, uh, Almanzar's death and the caliph's, uh, the caliph managed to hold things together. But when he died, the empire quickly disintegrated into civil war. A number of power brokers in Andalusia dreamed of following in Almazar's uh, footsteps, and the eventual victor was highly dependent on Berber armies, which proceeded to pillage Spain, force cities to pay protection money, and finally forced the new caliph to grant the Berber generals huge provincial fiefs. In 1016, that caliph was assassinated by one of these generals, and Andalusia fragmented fully into many states. In the year 1050, there were six main mini-states, Zaragoza on the northeast, Badajoz, Toledo, and Valencia in the center, and Granada and Seville in the south. Of these, uh, Seville was uh, the most powerful. Now, as you might imagine, the disintegration of Andalusia as a cohesive political unit uh, gave the Christian kingdoms uh, a big advantage. And in fact, they took the upper hand on the peninsula, especially Fernando I of Leon and Castile, who reigned from 1037 to 1061, and who ran what was essentially a protection racket scheme, charging the Tafas an annual tribute in gold in exchange for military aid. 
Toledo, Badajoz, and Zaragoza paid him annual tributes by the end of his reign, and Seville and Valencia also occasionally paid him tribute. Now, things were looking really good for the Christian kings, but this wasn't to last. And that's because a new fundamentalist movement was brewing in the Maghreb. Remember the Fatimids? Well, I told you that that was a problem, that is to say... Um, rising powers in North Africa is going to be a recurring problem. And by 1083, a new dynasty, the Almoravids, the Almoravids ruled Morocco. Now, the Almoravids, their leadership was vastly different than that of the Taifa kingdoms of Spain. They looked down upon their so-called godless ways, and especially at the payment to the Christian kings. So, when Alfonso VI completed the conquest of the important city of Toledo in 1085, the people of Andalusia panicked, and many begged for aid from across the Mediterranean. The Almoravids answered that call eagerly, and on the 23rd of October of 1083, they inflicted a decisive defeat against Alfonso's forces, Calling in aid was not easy for the Taifa kings, but as Al-Mutamid of Seville is quoted as saying, he would, quote, rather be a camel driver in Morocco than a swineherd in Castile, unquote. Al-Mutamid was indeed dethroned by the Al-Moravids in 1091 and spent his last remaining days in Morocco, which I should again say, I'll repeat what he said, at least he wasn't in Castile. The Almoravids did indeed reunify Andalusia, but they never did reconquer Toledo. Um, Andalusia uh, was now, though, ruled by colonial governors sent across from the Mediterranean. The Almoravids were poor rulers, and frankly, their term of rule in Spain has been chronicled uh, by one historian as uh, an extended looting expedition and that the position of the Almoravids in Spain was that of an illiterate military caste, controlling but apart from the native society. The first rebellion in Cordoba was in 1119, and within five years, the hold of the Almoravids in Spain was beginning to fray. Now, simultaneously, the Almoravids were facing serious pressure at home from a rival group, the Almohads, who formed their own state from within the empire and began campaigning against the Almoravids in the 1120s. Now, the final straw for Almoravid power in Andalusia broke with the death of the Almoravid emir in 1143. This was followed by widespread rebellion in Andalusia and the formation of what historians have termed the Second Typhus. Nevertheless, the Almoravid invasion of Andalusia and the Spanish principalities frightened all of Europe. Now, the Vatican opened up a second front in the Crusades in Spain as a result of this and granted indulgences to those brave Christians willing to liberate Spain from the hands of the Saracens. Catalans, Genoese, Frenchmen, and others from across Europe all answered the call. And so the reconquest was transformed into crusade. And no small number of knights took up the sign of the cross, traveled to Spain, either before or instead of journeying to the Holy Land. Now, in Castile, Alfonso VII 
takes Cordoba in 1146. The following year, he allies himself with some Genoese merchants who provide him with a navy, and he takes Almira for the first time. And, or excuse me, I should say, for the first time, Castile had an opening to the Mediterranean. Uh, Now, the Almohads retook both of these cities, however, but um, in the west, another grandson of Alfonso VI was having more permanent success. Now, for for lessening confusion, I'm going to call him by his Portuguese spelling of his name, Afonso, and not Alfonso. In 1139, Afonso defeats an Almoravid army and declares himself king of Portugal, and in 1143 asks for formal recognition from the Pope, which I should let you know, he just invents Portugal out of nothing. Um, now, in 1147, Afonso, with ships from London in the Low Countries, was able to siege Lisbon, and the first bishop of Lisbon was an Englishman. And this joint effort is the beginning of a close relationship between those two countries that lasted, you know, for centuries. Um, yeah, I really should, I just want to make it a point. Uh, Afonso is essentially, is the younger brother of, of the king of, uh, of Leon, and uh, simply wanted to be king too. So he thought to himself, you know, I'm a good chivalrous knight. Uh, I'm just going to conquer a bunch of stuff and say it's mine. And that's what he did. Uh, now, with all that said, the Almohads, that is, you know, the people who are replacing the Almohadids, goodness gracious, the Almohadids are replaced by the Almohads, and they advance into Andalusia. And that advance does not reach its apex until the last quarter of the 12th century. They took Granada in 1154, Almira in 1157, and launched a full-scale invasion of the peninsula in 1160. In 1191, they took Alcer del Sol, which guarded the southern approaches to Lisbon, and 1195 defeated the armies of Alfonso VIII of Castile at Alarcos, and in 1197 even besieged Madrid briefly. In 1203, they took the Balearic Islands. Now, these conquests in Spain were coincided uh, with Saladin's armies over Christians in the Holy Lands uh, in the in the Eastern Mediterranean, and and what and and you know I know this is a huge uh, simplification of everything, and and and, and uh, but a, 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 we basically what had happened was a full century of crusading in the Middle East had come to nothing. And all the blood and treasure there spent was wasted. Uh, the Christian states in Iberia were quarreling with each other, and it wasn't until 1212 that Alfonso VIII was able to mount a counteroffensive against the Almohads, in large part by organizing a Hispanic coalition to fight under him. Uh, the following battle would thus be massive. The Battle of Las Navas was fought on the 16th of July, of 1212, just south of Despeñaros of the Despeñaros Pass, on the way south uh, from Madrid to Cordoba. The Christians won this battle, and the Almohad leader fled. Alfonso, Alfonso captured his standard, uh, that Almohad standard, and had delivered a devastating blow to Almohad military power. Alfonso wrote a letter about his success, which detailed the size of the defeated army. Quote, 
When our army rested after the battle for two days in the enemy camp, for all the fires which were needed to cook food and make bread and other things, no other wood was needed except that of the enemy arrows and spears that were lying about. And even then we burnt scarcely half of them. Now, Almohad power began to fully collapse in response to this loss, especially as yet another tribe left the desert and went north, warring with the Almorads for control of North Africa. On the meantime, King Sancho II of Portugal took this opportunity to reconquer the Alcer do Sol before his ascension to the throne in 1217. And by the end of his reign in 1248, he had conquered the rest of Portugal, which basically since then has retained the same basic dimensions to this day. And he did so largely with the aid of foreign crusaders. Numerous knights made pit stops in Portugal, conquering a castle or two and then hopping back aboard a ship on their way to the Holy Land. And in this way, the Portuguese crown under King Sancho II uh, increased the land of the realm by 70%. Now, James I of Aragon, meanwhile, spent the first decade of his rule in civil war before he eventually restored order, in part by acquiescing to the desires of the nobility and commercial interests, and by, in doing so, sent out a great fleet which set sail for Majorca in 1229. Uh, Majorca is an island in the Mediterranean. Um, and near it, uh, Minorca, which in 1231 submitted to Aragonese lordship and paying tribute for nominal independence, and these, these two island conquests are the first baby steps of a combined Aragonese-Genoese overseas empire. That is to say, Genoan merchants owned the navy, which was used that brought the Aragonese to, the Mediter- uh, to uh, Majorca and Minorca. Um, and we're going to start talking about that in more detail a little bit shortly. But for now, let's turn our attention back to the mainland, because as the... In the 1230s, uh, James, King James that is, advanced down the Mediterranean coastline. By 1236, he was laying siege to Valencia, and greatly aided by local Muslim elites who feared losing power, allied themselves with the Spaniards, the city surrendered, and the royal standard of Aragon was raised two years later. James wrote that uh, after this, quote, When I saw my standard upon the tower, I dismounted turned myself towards the east, and wept with my eyes, kissing the ground for the great mercy that had been done to me." He continued enlarging his empire, and by his death in 1276 he had doubled the size of Aragon. In fact, his conquests were significant enough that he complained near the end of his reign that he needed 100,000 settlers for his lands, but had only attracted thus far 40,000. Now, in Castile, under the reign of Fernando III, expansion, if you can believe it or not, was happening even more rapidly. Castile and Leon were united in 1230, just after the last independent king of Leon conquered large ports of uh, Extremadura. And in 1236, Fernando conquered Cordoba with help uh, by way of Muslim disunity, which was racking Andalusia, when Ferdinand III captured Cordoba, he held the city by 
allying with the Muslim ruler of the nearby city of Jean, who greatly aided the Castilians' ability to hold on to the city. Ten years later, he laid siege to Seville. Two years later, um, and two years after the beginning of the, uh, of, the, of the siege, I should say, he finally succeeded in starving the people of Seville into submission. Uh, that left basically Granada as the last Muslim kingdom in Spain. Now, Ferdinand III certainly would have uh, conquered uh, Granada too, and in fact he dreamed of extending his empire into Africa, but he died before he could try that. And um, with that, around the same time, there was a cool, I should say, a cooling of Spanish Christians' crusading zeal. Um, also contributed heavily to the peace with Granada. And that Granada survived until 1492 was due in part as a result to the leadership of Granada continuing to pay tribute to Spanish kings as well as, as the Christian preoccupations elsewhere. Uh, in fact, Portugal and Castile award uh, often during this period. Um, France and England were, are engulfed in the Hundred Years War uh, during this time. Um, and the Spanish were, were in fact, uh, having trouble uh, enough just peopling their new possessions, which they had already reconquered. Uh, Fernando complained in 1255 that the population of Seville was shrinking. The kings of Hispania were forced to issue royal charters called repartimientos, which subdivided new cities and lands into plots for the nobles, knights, soldiers, and sailors, various religious orders, the pope, and royal lands that they were, all these conquests were getting subdivided into lands for all of these people. Now, in the end, Castile provided about 40% of the new settlers. But what really propelled the reconquest forward was that of the settlers, that is, the people who were going into the newly reconquered Muslim lands, these Christians, 30% of these were what the historian Fernando uh, Fernandez Marmesto excuse me, has called a footloose manpower because they moved from frontier zone to frontier zone. Uh, without which there could have been no Spanish Empire in the old world or new, says Fernandez Armesto. Um, now, Spanish kings also imported large communities of Jewish immigrants into parts of conquered Andalusia, promising these communities privileges in exchange for moving. Uh, Seville, for example, does not seem to have had much Jewish presence before the conquest, con conquest whereas afterwards it contained the second largest Jewish community in all of Spain. Um, this greatly uh, helped to explain the repopulation of Andalusia, but in, in later generations would make these Jews extremely unpopular by their fellow subjects. And here, um, let, me, let me go on to say um, that a big, re well, let me go on to say that the, there's one other important group of immigrants uh, introduced to Seville, and, and the most important. Uh, of the and uh, in, introduced into Seville and the other conquered cities, and these are Genoan Italians. Uh, in Seville, they receive a quarter of the city for their naval help, uh, and the Italian merchants. Uh, these guys have trading routes in Africa and in northern Europe, and over the next century, they will transform Seville, particularly, into an economic powerhouse and sea power. Uh, but anyway, back to the point I was I was going to make here. Um, I, one thing I, I found that was pretty interesting, both 
both Christians and Muslims, um, rulers often uh, would bring in immigrant populations for specific purposes. And that is, say, if you were a Christian king of a Christian principality, there were all sorts of laws about Oh, restrictions. Uh, the king couldn't tax these Christian nobles or these, uh, this and that, all these restrictions. And the same is true in the Muslim world. These Muslim kings can't tax their Muslim subjects to the full extent that they desire to. You know, going to war is expensive. And so well, one way to get around that is, is to bring in foreigners who, if you're a Christian king of, of Seville, uh, well, if I bring in some Jews, there's no laws against me taxing them. Uh, and so if I give them big contracts, they'll make lots of money, and then I'll make lots of money. And this is going to work uh, pretty good. But at any rate, it's this is the process um, that will eventually lead to a lot of the resentment um, that you'll see in, in Europe against uh, particularly Jewish populations. Um is because these these people are they're given given privileges um, that that uh, in exchange sometimes tend to make their neighbors resentful. At any rate, it wasn't until 1471 that Ferdinand and Isabel were wed, joining Castile and Aragon. Calls for the subjugation of Granada followed after this, and in 1485 the monarchs obliged and asked the Pope to grant a bull for crusade. And as a result, the last king of Granada surrendered seven years later, in January 1492. Ferdinand and Isabel wrote to the Pope that, quote, It pleased our Lord to grant us complete victory over the king and the Moors of Granada, enemies of our holy Catholic faith. After so much labor, expense, death, and shedding of blood, this kingdom of Granada, which has been occupied by infidels for 708 years, has been conquered, unquote. Of the roughly half a million remaining Moors in Spain, 200,000 emigrated to Morocco. Another 200,000 remained, living under Christian rule. The remaining 100,000 were killed or sold into slavery during the conquest of Granada. And so went the reconquest of Spain. Now, but that doesn't, I think, fully answer the question of why Spain and Portugal are able to go from conquering the Iberian Peninsula to conquering the world. While we have learned so far where Spain and Portugal came from and how the 15th century, I guess, the character of these Iberian knights had become so warlike in, in, so, in some ways, I, I, I think I, it goes to... You know, when the Muslims and Christians at war with each other, um, intermittent war with each other for so long, you really, it's like a, the old saying, steel sharpens steel. And, and, and these guys uh, are pretty badass, I should say. Um, but how did these murderous savages get halfway across the world to the Americas? And to examine this, we have to take a closer look at how Iberians began to export their crusade against Islam into the Mediterranean. And so let's go back to the conquest of Majorca 
which was made possible because James made considerable concessions of land to those who were willing to join the undertaking. This gave Aragon experience dealing with land-hungry colonists and dealing with a sometimes hostile native population. Now, historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto, uh, he calls this the, quote, crucible of colonial experiment, unquote. Now, after land was conquered, it was divided, um, and, and, and in this process, the crown gained twice the amount of land that it gave the largest grantee. And while this depleted somewhat, while this, I guess, grant was depleted somewhat by granting soldiers and sailors smaller grants out of this royal grant, it nonetheless constituted a huge bonanza of land for an impoverished crown. Uh, tens of thousands of Moors on, on Majorca were put into slavery and sold as a result of the conquest. And though a sizable number of these were able to purchase or otherwise obtain their freedom, um, this likewise enriched Aragon. But what attracted James the most to the conquest of the island were the enclaves of Genoese and, and Jewish traders on the, on the islands. Uh, the Jews in particular, with their connections to the Maghrib, were thought of as, quote, a treasure house, from whom the trades and traders in peacetime received great abundance, unquote. While Jews and Muslim populations were often persecuted within Christian lands, uh, like I was saying earlier, um, rulers often likewise encouraged the settlement of these minority populations since they were more easily taxed subjects. While the colonization of the island was largely left to cattle and immigrants, the island served as a center of re-export for Aragon and Catalans both or Aragonese and Catalans both, the galleys of the day required a lot of manpower. And as a result, they required a lot of victuals. And so they required frequent stops on land. Now, Majorca greatly increased Aragon's ability to export, uh, to, or excuse me, to profit from the export of iron, figs, oil, wine, and slaves to the rest of the Mediterranean world by providing uh, a place for these galleys to stop off and revictual. Now, Majorca also became a shipbuilding hub itself after a Jewish cemetery was turned into a shipyard. Uh, no laws against that, remember? In 1340, carpenters there completed the construction of six cogs. The armaments industry also grew, and in the 1380s, thousands of crossbows left Majorca for England and Flanders. But the greatest economic success in Majorca was in the textile industry, and all of this was largely financed by Italians, mostly Genoese. But uh, by the 1380s, uh, this economic boom was starting to slow in Majorca. The initial colonization featured numerous concessions from taxes and grants of land from the crown in order to attract settlement. And this created an environment very conducive, as you might imagine, for economic growth. But uh, also in the 1300s, plague was around, and that contributed to population loss of around 20% from the years 1329 to 1343. And during this time, the island lost its feudal independence, and it was uh, reabsorbed, I guess, uh, in, under direct rule from Aragon. And that also contributed to the shrinking economy. And we're going to see this uh, boomtown effect again and again in the future in, in colonial enterprises, I should say. Now, uh, 
Tiny Ibiza and even tinier Formentera were the next of uh, the Aragonese conquests, so James did not participate in this. Um, unlike Majorca, these two islands would be conquered as private enterprises. The kings reserved possession of fortified places, the right to make war and peace, and the exclusive right to the homage of the participants in the conquest, but the would-be conquistadors were going to have to pay all the costs and bear all the risk. Ibiza was stormed and conquered in August of 1235 on behalf of the Archbishopric of Tarragona, which didn't get much out of the conquest of Majorca and didn't want to be left out. Much smaller than Majorca, the island had difficulty attracting settlers until the lords of the island yielded rights to settlers for harvesting salt, which was really the only industry on the island besides slave trading. Formentera, even smaller, was actually abandoned in 1403. Aragon did not continue to expand into the Mediterranean for this uh, for another two generations. But in 1282, King Pedro III conquered Sicily in an attempt to monopolize the Mediterranean grain trade. Uh, the Spanish con colonists of Sicily, though, um, shortly after that, I guess you should say, I could say they became Sicilianized in a relatively short period of time. Oh, those beautiful passionate Italians. What a good spouse they would make. Now, Pedro's successor, King Alfonso III, looked toward Menorca, perhaps in an attempt to restrain the nobility, which threatened to fracture into civil war, and perhaps in an attempt to keep Genoese and Portuguese rivals from attempting to do the same. But whatever his reasoning was, he conquered Menorca in 1287 in brutal fashion, Nearly the entire population of the island was rounded up and enslaved, which provided for short-term benefits, but ultimately doomed the island to economic collapse. In 1370, a hundred years after the conquest, almost, there were still houses abandoned by the Moors, which remained empty. The largest import into the island was food. Uh, barbarism seems to have become rampant, if we uh, judge by one incident in 1354, where the lieutenant governor was killed when he was hit in the head with a candlestick during a fight that broke out. What really sticks out wasn't, I think, the fact that the government official was killed, but the fact that the uh, uh, fight occurred right on the high altar of the main church of the island. Now, uh, now Alfonso IV was the king of Aragon when the invasion of Sardinia uh, began in 1339, the Aragonese plan for that island, according to Fernandez Ernesto, was for Sardinia to become a feudal utopia. Sards were enslaved and shipped off the island in the thousands, but despite this, the utopia never materialized. Instead, near-constant rebellion wrapped the Spanish rule, which could only be quelled by giving concessions to Paisan and Genoan merchants there. The merchants of Barcelona continued to pour money for 50 years into this project, but the only result was to greatly lessen the power of Barcelona and Aragon. And so the Arago-Catalan Empire began to end. Um, but it would be untrue to call the endeavor, I think, a failure. While the crown of Aragon did not get close to achieving all the goals it wished, it had still become greatly enriched. And except for the merchants of Barcelona who spent 50 years throwing money into a Sardinian hole, uh, a lot of people ended up making a lot of money. Now, 
Castile was enlarged enough that, in effect, it was able to profit from connecting, the Medi- from connecting to the Mediterranean world. Aragon's conquests were smaller, but it is possible that by conquering Valencia, King James had more than doubled the wealth of his kingdom. And those Spaniards who traded in Majorca and beyond were able to increasingly penetrate the Mediterranean world of trade, shipping, and piracy. The Portuguese had no Mediterranean outlet, but they were just outside the rim, and this enabled Lisbon to grow also into a mighty city. And so taken as a whole, the conquest and reconquest of Spain shows how the Spanish and Portuguese uh, became a laboratory of colonial experiment, as stated so eloquently by Fernandez Armesto. The conquest of Andalusia and the Mediterranean islands gave these cultures in particular first-hand experience in conquest on land and across the seas, as well as dealing with subject populations. It also brought the Portuguese and the Spanish closer to Italy, where the people of the city-state of Genoa were engaged in a Mediterranean expansion of their own. And I say the people of Genoa, and not Genoa, the nation of Genoa, I should say, or the city-state of Genoa, because the Genoese put almost no state sponsorship into the Mediterranean expansion at all. Now, Genoans spread from Byzantium and the Khanate of the Golden Horde in the east and to Castile and Lisbon in the west, but they did so almost entirely as merchants. Thus, the Genoese Empire of the late medieval period uh, that we're going to be taking a look at right now is one that existed alongside, or, or maybe it's better to even say it existed within other Mediterranean empires. And this was largely possible because Genoa had engaged in piracy throughout the 10th and 11th centuries against the Muslim world. And by the 12th century, Genoa was poised for a vast overseas expansion. Um, In 1195, the Genoans founded Bonifacio on the southern tip of Sardinia, a nearly impenetrable castle that served as an entrepot for Corsican grain to flow into Italy and all now controlled by Genoan merchants from Bonifacio. Um, Bonifacio was actually almost entirely, it was almost entirely self-governing, and the fact that subsequent Genoan expansion was largely the result of uh, individual families, warlords, and merchants who were in effect able to create a mercantile network that stretched across the Mediterranean. Uh, But this mercantile empire also sometimes submitted to local kings, and Ultimately, it will be a combination of Iberian conquest and Genoese capital that is going to allow Spain and Portugal to conquer the world. Now, the visiting crusader James of Vitry wrote this of Genoa in 1216, quote, For there are, are, there are powerful and rich men there, practiced in arms and warlike, who have a great store of the finest round ships and galleys, and they have skilled sailors their way of the sea, and have penetrated Saracen lands in pursuit of gain. Now, unquote, that the Genoese went about establishing far-flung trading posts in this way was um, in some ways the result of the, another uh, uh, Italian empire's collapse, that of the Venetians in 1261. Um, As a result of this, Genoan merchants founded Pera near Constantinople and then Kaffa and Chios at the Black Sea. And and the process by which they did so was that these Genoan merchants basically formed um, 
They formed local power by making themselves economically indispensable, and then, after doing so, obtaining concessions from the local rulers. This is exactly what happened in Kaffa in the early 14th century, when Genoan merchants angered the Khanate, and Mongol forces attacked the city in 1308. Afterwards, the Genoese simply abandoned it, and in their absence, the Khanate uh, began to appreciate the Genoans more, and so they were allowed to return. And as a result, uh, a reward for their patience in dealing with the Mongols were allowed to spread to other black seaports. The Byzantines dealt similarly with Para, and by the mid-14th century, it seems they abandoned, finally attempting to control the city and allowed it to operate as a free Genoese territory. And, and so the Genoese Empire operated uh, similarly to that of Jewish merchants. For while no central authority was directing the Genoans to expand this way or that way, uh, they did have a sense of mutual national solidarity that, that seemed to bind the Genoese world together. Whenever a new colony was founded, invariably the new colony would begin to take the shape of Genoa itself. Uh, street names, building styles, and most importantly, Genoan law was imported with these merchants. And, and this is the stuff that poets would write about, such as this anonymously written bit. So many are the Genoese, and so sure-footed everywhere, they go to any place they please and place their city there. This allowed Genoans to travel from place to place in relative safety. Uh, such as when Columbus was shipwrecked in 1471 and was rescued by the Genoans of Lisbon, and then was greatly helped by the Genoans of Seville, who would raise money for his expeditions, as well as use their influence in court to enable him to meet uh, Ferdinand and, and Isabel. By that time, uh, that is to say the 1470s, no fewer than 300 Genoese trading off houses had offices in Castile, Columbus, for his part, never forgot his heritage and in his will bade his descendants to forever maintain a residence in Genoa. Many of the same Genoan families who were involved in the expansion of the Black Sea were still involved in the early Caribbean expansion. So, in addition to this, Genoan families were also infiltrating the African side of the Mediterranean at Tunis and Malaga. Malaga served as an opportunity for genuine merchants to get their hands on spices and other exotic goods without having to deal with the Venetians in the 13th century. And in the 13th century, people commented on the new round ships uh, that was mentioned by, I think, Bob J. James Avitri in his quote of the Genoese merchants. Now, these round ships are sailing ships, these early sailing ships, which required far fewer crew and thus far fewer victuals or supplies. Um, and in the late 14th century, the Genoese merchants of the Mediterranean began switching to more local bulk products, such as alum, mastic grain, timber, and slaves. And as a result, um, the Genoese galleys began going out of commission and had completely disappeared from Genoese commerce within a century, replaced by the new round sailing ships, capable of carrying much heavier loads. And this enabled Genoese merchants to travel farther than they otherwise would be able to with their cheaper bulk products. Um, now, galleys could make their way for trade in, in the North Atlantic and were in use even at the time of the Spanish Armada. But the Genoese were able to sail to England without stopping in Portugal or France. 
and this greatly increased their ability to profit off bulk goods like wool and timber, which they brought back from England since a sailing vessel required a much smaller crew and far fewer victuals than the heavily manned galleys of the day. Now, combined with inventions such as the compass, this enables greater and greater seafaring capability of the, by Europeans in general, and especially by the Italians, and even more especially by the Genoese. Now, back if we can go to the coast of Africa, to the city of Malaga, which had, was shipping most of its goods to Granada up until 1492. Um, well, uh, the Genoese, uh, who were also there, started setting up shop, and they become familiar with the production of, of a couple more products. One is silk produced in Granada, and after the disruption of the silk trade routes by the Mongols um, had become much more valuable. And of far greater importance to our overall story is sugar. Now, this new spice of the Levant was so popular that it could compete with the exotic spices of the Orient. In fact, the sugar industry of Granada even maintained its own port at Almira, where the Genoese were uh, setting up shop and had many agents. Now, the Mongolian Empire had split into four separate khanates, begun to crumble in the 14th century to rebellion, and the spreading Black Death that plagued the Old World. And by 1369, there really is no more Mongolian Empire. And this greatly reduces European access to Chinese luxuries, which in turn served to increase European demand for trade with Africa. And so that kind of lets us turn to the last piece of the puzzle, why Spain? Why Portugal? And, and I think we should add for posterity uh, of Columbus's heritage. Why the Genoese? Well, James I of Aragon began raiding coastal Africa in the 1230s. Years of pecking at the Moroccan coast eventually pays off, and by 1274, he secures clientage uh, over Tunis and Quetta. In 1284, the Aragonese fleet captures the islands of Jerba and Kirkenna. And then in 1291, James II of Aragon and Sancho IV of Castile agreed to partition Africa between their two countries. Now, neither monarch was able to obtain more than just a tenuous little foothold on the African coast. So in practice, this agreement was almost meaningless, except as a precursor, I guess, for the Treaty of Tordesillas but it shows their interest in Africa. Uh, Djerba, uh, excuse me, and Kirkenna grew grapes, dates, olives, and cotton. Genoan merchants were, of course, on hand with their round-sailed ships to export these commodities. But despite the conquest of the islands, the rest of European activity was confined to mercantile operations on the coast during the 14th century. To aid in colonization of these African islands, James encouraged Jewish communities uh, for the sake of dwelling and settling in our lands, since uh, Jewish merchants were able to avoid restrictions against Christians and Muslim North Africa, and thus were much better positioned to better extend their trade networks deeper into the trade routes of the Sahara. And this eventually enables Europe to gain just enough understanding of how sub-Saharan Africa was connected to the global economy of the world to make trade there irresistible 
during the 14th and 15th centuries, as increasing numbers of traders and raiders, and these two are often basically the same thing, begin exiting the Mediterranean, seeking trade routes that would bring them closer to the African gold, tra gold trade. This brings Europeans to their rediscovery of the Canary Islands, and shortly afterwards, Madeira and the Azores, all of which were islands uh, incorrectly uh, at the time believed to be closer to this source of African gold. Now, uh, Spain and Portugal by the mid-15th century, uh, if we can kind of uh, broaden out a little bit our, our, our view at the past um, from what's going on specifically with, with, with the conquests of the various Spanish uh, kingdoms, if we can broaden out we, and, and just look at what's happening. By the mid-15th century, uh, Spain and Portugal had been engaged in basically near-continuous warfare for hundreds of years. The governments of Castile, Aragon, and Lisbon had thus hundreds of years' experience in the logistics of siege warfare. They knew how to take part fortifications, and they had learned a great number of different ways of ruling or otherwise dealing with hostile populations. As they gained power and access to the Mediterranean, this puts them in better contact with Genoese traders, who established a far-ranging trade network of their own, along with ships capable of long-range travel without frequent stops on land. Now, As the Almoravid Empire collapsed, this alliance allowed Castile and Aragon, which soon to be Spain, and Portugal to obtain mercantile toeholds in Africa. Now, this happens at the same time that in the east, the Ottoman Empire were making gains, uh, taking Constantinople in 1452, and, and thus closing off trade routes that Europeans had previously used to get to the east. And so that's what's going on uh, in the 1400s. Uh, but before we end this episode, I want to turn back specifically to sugar. Because after the rise of Islam brought Mediterranean and Indian, the, the Mediterranean and Indian Ocean worlds closer together, um, Europe began to become familiar with a range of tropical crops, including rice, taro, coconuts, bananas, plantains, lemons and limes, and, and fatefully sugarcane. Now, during the Crusades, when Europeans controlled much of the Levant during the 11th and 12th centuries, they first obtained uh, control of sugar plantations, which previously that they had only been able to, uh, you know, purchase sugar from. Uh, now, sugar requires much more intensive labor to cultivate in comparison with uh, almost any other crop, and certainly anything that Europeans had been previously familiar with uh, that I'm aware of. Uh, and this is largely because of the weight and the bulk of the sugar cane is such that it is too costly to transport without first processing it by squeezing out the cane juice um, and boiling it to remove excess water and thus producing the crystalline sugar which we are all so very, very addicted to. Now even a small sugarcane farm of less than 500 acres therefore required its own uh, processing factory for creating sugar. Now once concentrated, though, sugar it was tremendously valuable and was therefore an easy crop to profit from um, over long-distance trade over water. And the successful crusader 
who found himself in charge of a new plantation, was able to um, transform himself from crusading warrior to agricultural manager. This was made much easier by crusading than in Europe, where serfs had considerable rights. But as conquerors, crusaders found themselves above local customary law. And over time, this relationship will evolve into what we will think of as capitalism today, uh, since the conquering Europeans both are thus owned both the land and the factory where their workers resided, and sugar isn't a crop you can live on, but merely a supplement. Um, and over time, this fundamentally kind of transforms the relationship between European rulers, who previously worked with serfs on the land, in a type of social compact in Europe um, to a new kind of relationship where Europeans in charge of a sugar plantation have, in comparison to Europeans in charge of a, of a feudal uh, estate, have vastly increased power over their subjects. Now, from 1190 onwards, when the Crusaders conquered Cyprus, Europeans are able to obtain more and more expertise in sugar production. Now, many of the most successful of the new planter class were Italian merchants who had been given land grants in exchange for using their shipping to ferry crusaders back and forth. Uh, the Mediterranean slave trade had a long tradition, and over time, the intermarried descendants of the merchants and the crusaders that formed a newly emerging planter class um, that evolves in the Mediterranean, they, they start using this slave labor that had pre-existed for sugar production in larger and larger numbers. Now, while Europeans from across the continent made investments into these new sugar plantations, Italians especially had interest in the plantations. And, for example, the Banco di San Giorgio, which is the state bank of Genoa, invested heavily in, in these operations. For a long time, the slaves on which sugar production was made possible had no color distinction. But in 1453, when the Ottoman Empire ca captured Constantinople, uh, it became much more difficult for European slavers to reach the slave ports of the Black Sea. And this happened at the same time that Portuguese mariners were beginning to first bring slaves uh, back from sub-Saharan Africa into Europe. Now, the famed historian of Africa and the slave trade, Philip Curtin, has named this process the rise of the plantation complex. Um, which, And the com plantation complex, it, are, these communities are very different than what existed in Europe. Um, but lucky for us, Curtin uh, made a list of six quantitative measures that enabled us to kind of define what the plantation complex means. And, and before uh, we go on, I think... Uh, I want to mention what that is. Now, first, most of the people living inside the plantation complex were slaves. Second, this plantation, the population was not self-sustaining, and the net decrease as a result of deaths over births required a constant supply of immigrants to maintain this population. Third, agricultural work was organized into large uh, plantations, usually of 50 or more slaves. Fourth, Although the plantation was, I guess, cap uh, basically one of the, the first capitalist enterprises, it also still retained some aspects of feudalism, especially in the form of the de facto legal control that planters had with 
in their plantations. Fifth, the plantations were created um, to supply a distant market. At first, just Europe, and mainly sugar, but also uh, with other crops such as tobacco, coffee, and cotton. And, and finally, the sixth distinction, uh, political control over the plantation complex lay on another continent and in a different kind of society that was not based on slave labor. Now, the Mediterranean islands, while capable of sugar production, were not ideal since sugarcane prefers a year-long climate of heat and humidity in the tropics. And as we continue, I just want you to keep it in your head that one of the big motivators of the financier class of sugar planters and shipping that is a part of early uh, European exploration into the Atlantic is the search for new islands that will be more productive for growth in the plantation complex. Now, they're going to especially find it on Madeira and later in the Gulf of Guinea Islands near the West African mainland, and eventually from there to the Americas. Now, I want to leave you with a few final thoughts to consider as we continue, because if I had started this podcast um, even a year ago, my conclusion here would be very different, I think, than how we're going to end today. And that's because um, I've been thinking about a few new ideas in my own life recently. And the first two are kind of related. and um, Well, they're, they're dietary in nature. Now, I didn't really understand how the so-called gut biome functions until pretty recently. And I still don't fully understand it. But, and I didn't really understand nutrition very well in general, I should say, until recently. And I've started to learn, and I've come to the conclusion, as many people have, that sugar is a drug. It is as addictive as anything else. Um, nicotine, heroin, cocaine. Um, one thing that I've discovered is that eating or drinking sugar just really just makes me want more. 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 And I wonder how much of the intense greed displayed by Europeans um, and remarked about by the peoples around the world that they encounter over the early modern period. You know, some of that, I think, can be boiled down to what was in their guts. I recently listened to a podcast um, uh, where the intellectual uh, Sam Harris explained his ideas about the illusion of free will. And I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I don't know that I've really thought about it enough. And I'm probably not eloquent enough to express the idea well enough. But from what I understand is that in his point of view, we are driven by forces that are beyond us in, in ways that we don't always understand. And it is likely that in some ways, human beings are we're, we're just we're vectors for biological processes that help guide our actions. I want to leave you with this because much of what follows in our upcoming episodes will probably be shocking to you. And if you stick around and keep listening, I just want you to consider this question. From whence cometh such evil? Now, so far, we've covered a lot of ground in Spain and the Mediterranean. Now, our next stop will be the Canary Islands. Um, and what we'll see there 
in that part of the world unfortunately presages what will happen in the Caribbean, uh, just as what happened in the Caribbean uh, had antecedents in the med medieval Mediterranean as well. So next episode, we're going to meet the Guanches, the indigenous people of the Canary Islands. And after that, we'll begin to chronicle the early Spanish and Portuguese conquistadors seeking access to the sources of gold and slaves in Africa, and that will eventually unlock the secret of how to navigate the Atlantic currents, and from there accidentally discover an entirely new world that lay opposite the world they knew. Now, I think uh, we'll leave it with that today. Um... I guess the one thing I really haven't talked about is explaining why I called this uh, episode Chivalry. Um, well, I did so because what we've been talking about here is, is chivalry. And I know that's a little odd to hear because uh, in so many ways what we think of as chivalry today is, is just this fanciful idea of men being gentlemen. But I assure you that for the, the knights of the medieval period... Um, Chivalry to them was a way of ruling, of a way of the strong ruling the weak. Um, now, what we have, I, I don't know how to understand it, um, or excuse me, I don't know how to say it better than this. Uh, let me just go with a quote here. Um, I don't remember where I got this from, but I was watching a documentary online about the knights of, of uh, the day and what they thought of as chivalry. Um, and I'm just going to try and remember this quote, which was, uh, chivalry was all about getting, was all about basically killing people, taking their things, and getting rich and famous by doing that. And, uh, this is, is, uh, the, I guess the heart of chivalry. Um, and the Europeans kind of learned how to do that, uh, in fighting, uh, Islam, for, for so many centuries, uh, both Christian and Muslim knights became better and better at doing this. Uh, at any rate, uh, what happens when these Christian knights uh, take this culture of chivalry, this uh, culture of conquest with them outside of a conflict between Christians and Muslims will be terrifying. Uh, at any rate, I look forward to speaking to you again next episode. Uh, until then, take care, and thanks for all the fish. Hey, fellow pirates, come and listen what I say. The captain is a tyrant and I know of taking orders from the madman in command so let's stop him on an island and leave him in the sand cause it's a mutiny it's a mutiny it's a mutiny and now we're taking over the ship it's a mutiny What's happening here? You're no longer in control and we're drinking up your beer. This is now a democratic, eagerly tearing pirate ship. So enjoy your trip. Go. 
Ship.